0: Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. WHO, dear. President Trump suspends funding during a global pandemic. Economic wake-up. The White House enlists help from hundreds of business leaders. And airline aid. U.S. carriers giving cash, but not without conditions. It's Wednesday. Let's make a move. Welcome to Wednesday's First Move. Great to have you with us as we continue to track global efforts to defeat the coronavirus outbreak and, sadly, the economic fallout that is coming as a result. We have cautiously good news on reopening efforts around the world to bring you, but also further evidence of why the conversations about economic wake-up do need to be had. Here in the United States, retail sales reflecting, I think, the shutdown reality falling some 8.7 percent in March. It's a record. And this only reflects the first two weeks of the lockdown. The month of April is set to be far worse. We should make clear, though, too, that this number doesn't capture the growth in online sales that we've seen over the past few weeks. And there are clear winners in this regard. Amazon hitting fresh record highs yesterday, too. For now, let me give you a sense. Futures are lower. We've had Citigroup, Goldman Sachs and Bank of America reporting weaker earnings pre-market today. All the details on what those players are saying. But for now, major fintech companies like PayPal, Square and Intuit rallied on Tuesday after being given the green light to lend money through the PPP. Remember the small Business lending program that's intended to save jobs here in the United States. But that money's running out. I'm hearing from the lenders that the initial $350 billion earmarked for the program will run out as soon as today. And that means the loans stop until Congress can agree more cash. That's my call this morning. Time's up. Leaders need to act to our drivers now. And speaking of action, President Trump temporarily suspending US funding to the World Health Organization. He criticised its handling of the pandemic and accused them of spreading disinformation from China. Nick Robertson joins me now. Nick, there are those that might argue that there's been plenty of disinformation spread throughout this crisis. But let's hone in on what that means for the World Health Organisation. How important is money from the United States?
1: Well, it's also the United States' message. I mean, the United States mm-hmm. is the biggest contributor. Um, their President Trump's message does erode, uh, you know, the credibility, if you will, and the certainty about the role that WHO can play going forward. I, I mean, look, this lost on the international community, world leaders, whether it's in the UK, we've heard them saying they're standing by the WHO. They're a pretty large contributor, about half of what the United States contributes. We've heard from the European um, Commission as well saying, that, or the Foreign Affairs Chief there, saying, you know, absolutely, we need to stand by the WHO. This is not the time. It's a dangerous time to be be doing this. Everyone is aware that what President Trump is doing is for domestic political gain. And that sits terribly uh, as a reflection of of President Trump and, and as of the United States, but what does it really mean? Well, mm-hmm. what it means is that the message of the WHO is critical in getting out to the world uh, about the pandemic, uh, and particularly sub-Saharan Africa, for example, where they lack the ventilators that even a, sort of a couple of hospitals in New York lack across the whole of that, you know, many countries there. Um, they rely on the WHO for guidance on what to do and how to do it. So, that, So there's a huge, role to be played there for what will ultimately become the world's problem again, when Europe's back on its feet and the United States back on its feet. If Africa is suffering badly, that's that's everyone's problem. And what the WHO would say is that their contribution so far, albeit uh, while they were sort of parroting um, China's line that there was no human-to-human transfer in, in January, when when I think the world is fully aware that, that um, China was... was uh, was was uh, you know not not giving a full accounting but any stretch of the imagination they did actually manage to get the W H O did actually manage to get the genome for the virus from china and then disseminate it to the world which provided that such valuable help to give all countries around the world the information they needed to make test kits for the virus. So that's the value of the WHO today and going forward.
0: And this is such a crucial point, and you make so many of them that are valid at this moment. We cannot at this stage in the crisis have a blame game going on. This is not about national politics or about one nation state. This is about connecting the dots as we all try and reopen. And I think the point that you're making here is whether there is criticism and there should be criticism of how we got to this point, we are here. And we still need to be communicating globally about where we are in order to not continue to see spread around the world.
1: China uh, certainly has, needs to get some of the blame for not providing information adequately yeah. when, it, when it could. It, it, it didn't tell its public what was going on. It didn't tell the world probably what was going on. Undoubtedly, we've seen the WHO be more robust with China in the past over SARS a uh, couple of decades ago, and get better results. Um, so, yes, there's blame to go around, but when you're fighting a global pandemic, everyone needs to stand together. And what President Trump is doing right now, world leaders are, world leaders are saying by their comments about how important the WHO is, what President Trump is doing right now, fighting fighting political battles, is not the real issue facing the world right now, and it belittles the United States uh, to find itself in this position Uh, certainly in the eyes of the world.
0: Yes, and the whole world will suffer. Nick Robertson, thank you so much for uh, joining us there. And I apologise to our viewers for the slight jarring of the equality there. That's what working from home does. All right, that announcement on the World Health Organisation too, overshadowing more positive news from that press conference. President Trump also announcing a new advisory group to help craft a plan to reopen the US economy The panel consists of dozens of industry leaders, including Apple CEO Tim Cook, billionaire Mark Cuban and NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell. The president plans to host a call to discuss the path forward today, too. John Harwood is in Washington for us. John, even from what I was hearing, I was not expecting hundreds of representatives on this panel. But the idea that these discussions, sector by sector, of how we sequence a reopening feels positive
2: Yes, it's a a positive impulse, but I do think, Julia, uh, anyone who's ever been on a committee knows that the significance of the committee is inversely related to the size of the committee. So uh, when you start naming all these people, some of these business people told our reporters afterwards they didn't even know they were on the panel. So uh, I think what that tells you is this is more of a gesture on the president's part, an indication of where he's leaving, and really uh, the decision on this is not going to be made by business people uh, making a a decision with political people to say we're going to open it up. It's going to be made by what the public health situation is on the ground, how Americans perceive that. Sixty percent of the uh, American people in a CNN poll last week said they would not be comfortable with resuming their uh, regular routines. Uh, and uh, consumers aren't going to consume, businesses aren't going to invest as long as there's so much uncertainty out there. So really, the power here still resides with the coronavirus task force, people like Deborah Burks and Anthony Fauci, who are going to make the decisions in conjunction with their counterparts in the states as to what's safe and what is not safe.
0: Yeah, John, I'm just trying to imagine a, a Cisco or a Zoom call with more than 200 individuals all wanting to have their say, which is just (laughs) mind-boggling, quite frankly. But to your exact point, and I agree with you, but I do believe that some of these business leaders will be very clear about the need for testing. They're not gonna bring their workers back and they will make that message very clear to the White House, more testing required.
2: Well, and Julia, maybe some of those business people can participate in the scale-up of the testing needed. That's one of the striking things about the president's news conference yesterday, Uh, he was asked about testing everyone knows that testing and contact tracing is the key to opening up the president said not my job that's for the governors maybe these business people can help
0: yeah can help force that because they know it themselves quite frankly from the conversations i've been having to john great to have you on the show thank you john harwood there now the urgency for reopening the u.s economy clearly illustrated i think by the earnings reports from the big banks Bank of America's first quarter profit fell more than 45%. They're setting aside billions of dollars, too, for potential bad loans. Goldman Sachs' net income also dropped nearly 50%. Claire Sebastian has the details for us. And, Claire, we go back, I think, pulling out the same things that we did from the bank earnings that we got yesterday. There's a cautiousness about these banks, about the solvency of borrowers and their ability to pay their debts through this period.
3: Yeah, Julia, this is the key theme that's running through these earnings we got today from Bank of America, from Goldman, from Citigroup as well. They are all seeing their profits drop by almost half, which frankly is slightly better than we saw yesterday from JP Morgan uh, and Wells Fargo. But the reason is that they are building up reserves. They are bracing for more pain from consumers and from businesses, and they are starting to see people need help at some scale, some numbers that we got from Bank of America, for example, is 16% of small business loans and lines. Those accounts, 16% of them have deferrals on them, 3% of consumer and small business card accounts. They are starting to see people request to defer payments as well. They've seen a big rise in corporate lending as people draw down on their revolving credit lines. This is something we've heard from all the banks. So they are starting to see people really need help and they are bracing for that. That's why they're building up reserves. But the other message that we've got from all of these banks again, Julia, is that they are in a position to help their well-capitalized Bank of America saying that they ended the quarter with more liquidity than they started it. So uh, the message is that they, they are available and want to be part of the solution as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. How times have changed, I think. Claire Sebastian, thank you so much for that. Now, the U.S. Treasury says major domestic airlines have accepted their terms to receive billions of dollars in state aid. The $58 billion bailout, which consists of grants and low-interest loans, will keep hundreds of thousands of employees on the payrolls. Richard Quest joins us now. Richard, what do you make of this announcement? Because it is financial aid. It was a survival situation for most of these airlines, given what we've seen. But there are terms and conditions attached.
4: Yes, there are. And the reason was that initially the airlines wanted the whole amount to be given as a grant. But the Treasury looked at it and said, no, that's not what we're going to do. Instead, we're going to look at how much the airline itself Actually benefits by this if you allow for the fact that some of this money there will be tax paid on it There will be social security paid on it all sorts of things will filter through the economy and what they came up with was 30% so 70% of the money is a grant 30% is a loan and you can see if you look at these numbers from two carriers that have already reported their details uh, The first American Airlines you can see the breakdown between the grant and the loan. Same with Southwest, the grant and the loan. And the difference there, Julia, is what the Treasury believes is the actual benefit to the airline, not the employees. And therefore, that's how they came up to it. By the way, there is another large pot of money, $25 billion, which is sitting there waiting to be offered as loans to the airlines.
0: So. To your exact point, they basically broke down this money right. and said, if this is going to payrolls, in a similar way to the small businesses too, yep. if this is going to protect workers and keep them in the role, you get the money free. If not, at some point in the future, you have to pay it back. And Richard, you know, at some point, these airlines will recover. They will be back in business. We will fly more. I think it makes sense that there should be some restrictions ultimately on this money. And... No government six months out from a presidential election wants to look like they bailed out anyone at this stage. And perhaps there's a message in there for other corporates looking for loans.
4: Yeah, but don't be too harsh on the airlines because of the cyclical nature and the the, the way they are so market-sensitive in in terms of travel. Now, to give you an idea here, yes, they have done that, and there's the usual strings. They can't do share buybacks. There's executive compensation rules. There's all those sort of things. But there's also warrants. Any airline taking more than a certain amount has to give warrants which are convertible into airline stock at the Treasury's discretion in the future. Now the last thing anybody wants is the U.S. government to suddenly be owning large chunks of the U.S. airline network. But bear in mind, Julia, two and a half thousand planes are on the ground. Those planes that are flying have got less than 10 percent passengers on board. The cost base and the capital cost of maintaining an airline with fixed costs is somewhat extraordinary. It will be months, if not two or three years, before the airlines ever reach anything like potential and proper profitability. ROI, decent ROI, 3, 5, 6% again. What kind of stakes are we
0: looking at, though? Because, Richard, and I fully agree with you, this is an essential part of right. the global economy today and moving around, because my understanding is there are tiny little stakes that we're talking about. And I, I do think that if you get money, the U.S. taxpayer should benefit when these guys recover, because they will recover. It might take time, but they will recover. I'm kind of on board with that.
4: It's over 100 million, and they are not necessarily, these warrants are not necessarily going to convert. It's up to 10%, I think, is the number, but you're right. The, the US taxpayer should benefit. They benefited in TARP in 2008, to the tune of billions from all the money lent to banks and insurance companies. So, yes, they should benefit. But I wonder whether the benefit isn't through the loan and the interest repayment component, rather than in warrants, which do act as a form of guarantee, or collateral, to some extent, if converted.
0: And that's such a great point. No one wants a government running an airline, quite frankly, at this moment. So as long as it's a well, silent partnership, we can we can allow it. <laughs> Richard, great to have you with us. Yeah. Thank you for that. Thank you. All right. You. Coming up on First Move, the EU's efforts to reboot members' economies with tailor-made plans. And later in the show, Silicon Valley retools to make protective gear for those on the front line. We'll hear how it's being done. Stay with us. I can hear you. One, two, three,
5: four, five.
0: Welcome back to First Move live from New York, where U.S. futures are pointing to a lower open for the U.S. market after a flurry of weaker earnings from banks and a fresh bash of dismal economic numbers this morning. U.S. retail sales falling almost 9% in March. That's the biggest drop on record. As we mentioned, it only reflects two weeks of shutdown. So the unfortunate fact is the April number will probably be even worse. In the meantime, New York State manufacturing activity plunged to a reading of negative 78 points in April. That is another record low and reflects the reality of an economy in shutdown. A slump in crude oil prices also pressuring energy stocks. U.S. crude has fallen back below $20 a barrel. That despite those OPEC production cuts. Remember at the time we said insufficient. And we're seeing that playing out in the markets. In the meantime, bank stocks are lower after weak results from Goldman Sachs, Citigroup and Bank of America all raising their provisions against future consumer and business losses. The European Commission, meanwhile, unveiling its roadmap for how to reopen the economy, saying member states need a tailor-made approach. This comes as more European countries start to ease coronavirus restrictions. Anna Stewart joins us live with the details. Anna, it's no surprise to me that individual nations need a tailor-made approach. They're all at different stages of fighting this crisis, but connected thinking, a plan to come out of this together and work together, surely is also very important.
5: It's crucial, and this roadmap needed to be published. Uh, There are a few issues, of course. Uh, Firstly, it comes a little late. As you said, some countries like Spain, Austria and Italy have already started to ease some of their restrictions. And the proposals haven't really changed that much, to be honest, from the drafts we saw last week. As ever with the EU, these are recommendations. EU member states are, of course, sovereign. Um, And the advice seems to be fairly common sense. I'll just run you through the top three principles that the EU are putting forward here, saying uh, that nations should consider when they talk about lockdown. First of all, it needs to be guided by science, by data, with health concerns at the center. Secondly, and I think this is a really important one, action should be coordinated by member states. They need to talk to each other ahead of time. They also need to notify the EU Commission before they go ahead with their plans. And thirdly respect and solidarity between member states the the second one the coordination is crucial yes it seems very common sense but heading into this pandemic what we saw with those eu member states who of course experienced uh, the virus at different rates and severity levels but they put up their internal borders with it in eu at different times and that meant some eu citizens got stranded it meant some goods including medical supplies and food couldn't get to certain countries. So it is absolutely crucial that heading out of the pandemic, that there is a coordinated response. So it comes a little late, but this roadmap is very important indeed.
0: We can justify in some way that they were caught off guard to some degree fighting this pandemic. And so we saw sporadic reactions, Anna, but show me the money. Because now they've had time to think about this. We're seeing what's happening in the southern member states too. So show me the money. Tell me about that conversation and when it's happening.
5: Well, there are plenty of conversations happening, but the question is how long is it going to take? So the mm. EU Commission President uh, today spoke once again about the need for an EU Marshall Plan to really lead the economic recovery as they exit the crisis. Now, this is for the next seven years. It's a yes. long-term EU Blue budget plan. Into- it needs to be a bigger budget. now. And the president said they will front load the investment. They need to talk not about a billion euros. They need to be talking about a trillion euros. But these talks won't actually begin in earnest till April 23rd. It will take a long time, I would imagine, to get all 27 member states on board. And as another example, the EU is leading talks to pool uh, government resources to try and find a vaccine for the coronavirus. But you know when that meeting is? May 4th. So today. Plenty of people questioning, you know, whether the EU does enough, but really a, a crucial question is also, are they moving swiftly enough given the severity of the crisis that we are looking at? Julia?
0: Yeah, nothing more critical, even with what's going on domestically, than a coordinated response here and more money for individual nations to fight it. Anna Stewart, thank you so much for that. A call to action there, I think. Now, as economies around the world look for ways to reopen, a new study by Harvard University says social distancing may need to be enforced until 2022. That's if a vaccine for the virus hasn't yet been found. Speaking on New Day a short while ago, one of the authors of the study explained why.
6: Our study looked at what, how we can navigate uh, both the goal of Um, maintaining the healthcare infrastructure, this whole idea of flattening the curve is to help us keep hospitals intact and not overwhelm them. Uh, But while we do that, the more successful we are, the more of the population remains susceptible so that when we stop social distancing, we will see uh, recrudescence or the resurgence of the virus.
0: Elizabeth Cohen joins us now. Elizabeth, great to have you with us as always two things for me there i don't think anybody imagines being in a situation where we're socially distancing or physically distancing for that length of time but it's it's not even just about the path or the bridge to a vaccine here it's also about having the adequate testing and the tracing in place to be able to feel like we have this situation under control can you give us a timeline on these things where are we in the united states
7: right Julia, you have it absolutely right. There are so many different systems that need to be in place for us to finally get back to normal. You need to have a good antibody test that is widely available. That's the test that tells people if they've developed antibodies and if they might be immune. You need to have good contact tracing. So when a case pops up, you can trace who they've been in contact with and quarantine those people. You have to have so many other systems in place, a vaccine, of course, being the most important. And if those systems aren't in place, then we have have to continue doing to some degree what we're doing. And Julia, the to some degree is the important part here. I don't think that, that Harvard or anyone else was saying we need to keep doing what we're doing now until 2022, but some measure of social distancing or civic distancing. I like that term that you used. And so that could be anything from, you know what, we're not going to have these huge concerts with tens of thousands of people or sporting events with tens of thousands of people to you can't have dinner with your best friend because you'll be within six feet of each other. So it's, it's there are things in between those two events that I just mentioned, having dinner with a friend versus a sporting event with tens of thousands of people. To what degree we'll be able to go back to any of those? Only time will tell. But that's what experts are thinking about as we move forward.
0: Yeah, we need more focus on ramping up testing ramping up tracing to be able to prevent that but your point is so critical i think we have to get our minds around what physical distancing in the future looks like and it doesn't have to be as extreme as today um thank you so much for joining us with your context as always senior medical correspondent uh, elizabeth cohen great to have you with us all right we're counted down to the market open this morning A lot of earnings out this morning, a lot of warnings, I think, about consumer stresses going forward. And, of course, that weaker-than-expected retail sales number, a reflection of life under shutdown. Stay with us. We're back after this with the market open. Welcome back to First Move. And uh, we're just watching the opening bell this morning. Uh, U.S. markets open for trading. As expected, a lower open for stocks, oil under pressure once again, and we had those weaker bank earnings this morning too. That is the snapshot that you can see. The volatility, it seems, in these markets continues right now down more than 2% for the Dow Jones. As you can see, just under that, outperforming once again the Nasdaq there, the tech-heavy sector. Why? While fresh numbers show retail sales falling by almost 9% in the United States last month. This, of course, a reflection of two weeks of economic shutdown across whole swathes of the United States. We've also just learned that U.S. industrial production fell almost 5.5 percent in March. That's the worst reading since 1946. None of this, of course, is unexpected, given what we're experiencing. This is purely a reflection of that. Now, we also get to the most up-to-date minutes of a gauge of the economic distress when the United States releases its weekly jobless claims tomorrow too. Estimates say we'll see an additional 5.5 million Americans filing claims. If we get that number, we're talking one in eight workers in the United States out of a job in the last four weeks. What we're seeing is a classic risk-off day with the dollar rising by over 1% and Treasury yields falling, a reflection of some growth concerns. Italian bond yields have risen meanwhile as much as 18 basis points today as you can see just shy of two percent there that's the concern as we were talking about with Anna from last week's uh, EU emergency rescue plans that they simply didn't go far enough for nations that have struggled with the coronavirus like Italy like Spain and of course Portugal another one to keep in mind too. Now, G20 finance ministers are expected to finalise a deal today to provide debt relief to some 76 poor countries, most of them in sub-Saharan Africa. The G20 wants to free up cash so that the most vulnerable nations can spend more on COVID-19 healthcare. We've talked at length here on First Move about the need for aggressive responses to help support nations fight this crisis. This feels like a key moment. John Defterius joins me now. John, Talk to us about the G20's plans and how significant is this step in terms of money and time to allow these countries to to tackle the virus?
8: And let's add to that the demand for the uh, money, uh, Julia. We know from the International Monetary Fund when it put out its uh, World Economic Outlook uh, that uh, 100 companies and countries, I should say, are knocking on the door looking for money right now. And that's grown 20 percent just in the last uh, two weeks. The G20 Finance Minister's meeting, which is chaired by Saudi Arabia, is still taking place. We're waiting for a, a formality and a statement on this subject right now. Uh, what is on the table is to have a debt suspension Uh, for a period of eight months on $20 billion of bilateral loans uh, to the G20 countries. We heard from uh, Bruno Le Maire, the finance minister of France last night, indicating that the G7 did support this and they were going to extend it to the G20. I see that going through. There's another $12 billion Uh, by multilateral lenders to the developing world where they're looking to suspend that uh, as well. Uh, Just like the global economy and the outlook though, Julia, the IMF said there is a downside risk here. What is it? We know that the coronavirus has set in First to China, spread to Europe, particularly in a country like uh, Italy and into the United States. This has not hit Africa and Latin America in a sizable way just yet. So the calls will grow louder as we go forward. And and I started to think about this in the context of what I'm seeing here in the wealthier side of the the Middle East, or if you look at Europe and uh, a country like Hong Kong, for example, and territories like Singapore, uh, the remittances for the developing world are going to drop like a stone here in the next six months. Many people overlook it, but it represents ten to fifteen percent of GDP. So I would say a debt suspension is not the answer, uh, but it's actual funding that's going to need to be ponied up here in the next two or three months because of the crisis arrived, arriving here to the south.
0: Yeah, I was just uh, I was just googling the the definition of debt relief. Debt relief is not just suspending payments for a certain period of time. I get that lots of these nations in the G20 have battles of their own at this moment and their own people to care for. But debt suspension, interest payment suspension is not relief.
8: It is not, Julia, and I'm glad you're underlining that uh, point here. There's been seven trillion dollars from the entire industrialized world set aside here for this crisis. Uh, The focus has been on their domestic economies, unemployment benefits, uh, providing liquidity to the banking system. But this is not something that's been a global response. Perhaps it's the leadership uh, in the United States that's taken this tone against multilateral institutions. The International Monetary Fund was trying to be subtle yesterday, suggesting we need a, a wider approach to this crisis like we saw during the uh, global financial crisis uh, ten years ago. Uh, we heard from the global alliance of past and present leaders, 160 of them saying we need an emergency fund, a fund, not the debt suspension of eight billion dollars. We heard from uh, U.S. Union leaders and 80 faith leaders suggesting we don't need uh, debt suspensions yet again. We need to have them forgiven on the debt in a crisis like this. So we have not seen any signals from the G20 or the G7 suggesting uh, they will pony up the funds. And I think this is something surprises me this far into the coronavirus. And knowing, Julia, just around the corner, we know what's going to happen in Africa, Latin America, large economies like India and Indonesia at the same time. Let's see if the narrative changes from the statement from the G20. As I said, the meeting has been extended. We're waiting to have a virtual press conference at the same time.
0: Do you think it's about leadership, John? Because you you mentioned a great point there. This is not just about sub-Saharan Africa. It's about countries like India, too. These nations need some fundamental support at unprecedented times dealing with something that we've literally never seen before. Does it come down to nation state leadership and the fact that people are so focused internally that they're not capable of coordinating on a a broader basis here and recognising that others perhaps need support more?
8: Well, if you go back and you're suggesting here, the figures that we're seeing from the United States are the worst since 1946. Mm. It was in that crisis that the architecture that we live with today. Uh, came uh, to fore. Uh, the United Nations, the World Trade Organization out of the gap round, of course, International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, Julia. Uh, if I can be blunt here, the streak of populism that we've seen in the UK with Brexit, nationalism that we saw earlier in Germany, although it didn't come to power, the same thing in France. And clearly the best example of this, or say the worst example of this, uh, is in the United States. Uh, the president is not a supporter of multilateral institutions, uh, kind of the backbone of the United Nations has been uh, eroded away here because of this tone that we've seen so far. And when you do need it, and this is the time to act, I don't see it coming from the G20. During the global financial crisis, I think Gordon Brown of the UK was very clever on pulling the money from the emerging markets with the developed world at the time because we needed it. Uh, We're not seeing it this time around. I find it extremely disappointing. Uh, The G20 keeps on saying, we've put up $7 trillion. We've got the money in the system. It's not getting transferred from north to south. This is that north-south divide that you and I have talked about from the emerging markets here that really need to have this in the healthcare systems and the lending to come in at a quicker pace with debt forgiveness.
0: Yes. Populism doesn't pay and the whole world suffers. And to your point, it's not just one nation. It's, um, it's many of them. Thank you, John. Let down by leadership. John Defterius. All right. Back when life was normal in Silicon Valley, technology from the 3D printing firm Carbon was used to crank out sneaker soles and dentures. Trainers in my world, among other things. After coronavirus hit, of course, everything changed. Carbon and its customers have retooled and now they churn out nasal swabs and face masks by the tens of thousands. Ellen Coleman is the CEO of Carbon. She's also former chief executive of DuPont and joins us now by phone. Ellen, fantastic to uh, get you with us. I know we've had some technical details, so thank you for uh, bearing with us here. Just talk to me about the decision not only to retool your own company, but also to go to your clients and say we can make a collective effort here.
9: So, you know, excuse me, Julian, great to speak to you as well. You know, as a 3D technology company, I mean, we deploy our technology in a wide variety of industries to help, whether it's to make dental, uh, dental, um, uh, you know, uh, materials, make dental materials and dental products. We make uh, consumer products, midsoles. And as the, you know, Northern California, the shelter in place came in and we were idling our labs. Our customers were idling their facilities. Um, we had some choices to make. What were we going to do? And that's when our people, designers, uh, other companies, you know, came together organically and said, what can we make with our technology, with our resins that can help? The medical shortages were clearly being spoken about very widely. And it came very quickly that we could make the frames for the face masks and get PET cut to complete the product. And we could make the nasal swabs, which are in, in in demand right now as the need for testing increases. And things like medical products though have regulatory uh, requirements. Uh, We had a resin that was FDA approved in the dental area and could easily be moved into a, a broader medical area. So it seemed to us that with our technology and our production partners and customers that we could help out in this great time of need.
0: It's fantastic. Just give me a sense of the scale, the volume of of what you're collectively producing now, whether we're talking the masks or the swabs, which actually I understand are
9: a little bit more complicated than it sounds. Yeah. So in the face shields themselves, carbon through our own laboratories can produce up to 18,000 per week and additional capacity with some of our customers who have converted their printers to produce these face shields can be more than 50,000 per week across our network. And so that's been occurring for the last few weeks and is really supporting the need on a very local basis since our printers are located uh, globally uh, around the world. On the on the swaps themselves, that is much more complicated. It has to hit a clinical need. It has to collect the sample It has to be readable in the analytic equipment, and it has to be comfortable for the patients. And so we've been working with the Israel Deaconess and Stanford University Medical Centers and really testing clinically different designs of swabs. And then with our partner, Resolution Medical, who is a medical device manufacturer, we have been able to create a supply chain for swabs coming from our thermoforming dental customers, to Resolution Medical out into the marketplace. And through that network, we can, we're can. we beginning to produce upwards of a million swabs per week in order to enable this additional testing to occur.
0: Yeah, it's fascinating. I think when this first began, we couldn't really understand why we were seeing shortages of swabs. How difficult was it? So it's, it's very interesting to get your context here. But those kind of volumes sound fantastic. Ellen, I want to ask you about the plan from here because as the conversation is... Evolving here in the United States about what returning to work looks like. When and how will you make the decision, one, to have your workers back in place versus how you're operating today, but but also will you continue to make these PPE um, products because there's still a risk, arguably, that we see more cases and a second wave of cases going forward, and, and this equipment will still be really critical. Can you talk us through the sort of two decisions that you're, you're thinking about
9: on that front? Well, yeah, certainly. So first, the power of 3D printing is its ability to pivot very quickly. We could be making midsoles one day, and the next day we could be making nasal swabs or other, mm. materi- other products that are needed. Because the designs are in the cloud, they're downloadable, Because and plus we have the experience of already doing it once. Those transitions can be very quick. So we can keep producing as long as there's a need. And then we can go back to our more historic work that we've been doing in the industrial space, uh, broader medical areas, the consumer space. And, um, and if the need arises again, we can pivot. I mean, our, you know, the dental marketplace in the United States is largely shut down except for emergencies. So getting dentures, getting, um, you know, liners and night guards and things like that is, is on hold. And it's that production network that's really being employed to produce swabs, to produce face shields, So they have some element of business that they can go on. So it's a pretty Mm. tough time for the dental industry. And this is a way that they can pivot their production to really help. So I think utilizing the power of distributed manufacturing and digital manufacturing, like 3D printing and specifically carbon is, can can be very powerful as these global supply chains are disrupted. It's fantastic leadership
0: and innovation in times of crisis. Ellen, stay safe, please. Thank you for the work that you're doing. And um, great great to hear what, what your company's doing and your clients. Great, Julia,
9: great Thank to Great to you. you. Stay safe as well.
0: Thank you. Ellen Coleman there, the CEO of Carbon. All right, up next, physical distance learning with in-person classes cancelled. We speak to Coursera, a company helping universities keep their students online but off campus. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. Boston University has cancelled its in-person summer programmes. It's even making plans to teach the full semester online if necessary. As a growing number of schools and universities consider the possibility that campus could remain closed until 2021, online education company Coursera is offering thousands of free courses to impacted students. Jeff majin Calder is the CEO of Coursera and joins us now. Jeff, great to have you with us. Right away, when this crisis hit, you made your online courses free for global universities. You're now helping students find courses that best match what they were doing already. Talk us through what you're uh, achieving here.
6: Yeah, a few things. First of all, uh, thank you for having me on this morning. Uh, Coursera was founded by a couple of professors from Stanford, and they wanted to make online education free to everybody. And so the, the majority of our business is directly to individuals. But last year, we started offering Coursera to help universities. And and we decided once uh, coronavirus hit, they were going to make this available to all universities and colleges in the world. Uh, We teamed up with UNESCO, World Economic Forum and World Bank. And now we're making this available to many, many campuses and many, many students.
0: How many students and campuses do you actually have on board? How many people are actually using this now?
6: Yeah, we have 55 million individual students around the world who are using Coursera. You could take any of the courses for free. You can watch the lectures. Uh, in, in March, the, the, the volumes are up over 1,000% in the US and over 700% globally. So there's a really strong demand across almost every country and across almost every content domain to do online learning people have more time to do it and they want to continue learning. Uh, on the Coursera for Campus side, we have received over 27,000 inquiries and we've gone live with 4,800 uh, instances for colleges and universities. We now have over a million learning hours from students on campus uh, who are now at home studying on Coursera. So we're, we're really happy to be helping.
0: I mean, this is astonishing. What kind of conversations, if any, are you having with those campuses about perhaps carrying on with online learning? as I mentioned there, after September and perhaps them not coming back in person until 2021. Are those conversations being
9: had?
6: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. You know, the first major Mm -hmm. response has been what some people call emergency remote teaching, which is get in front of a Zoom camera and just keep finishing up your classes. But as people think about the fall, they're thinking probably courses, uh, campuses will be closed or partially closed. If the virus uh, sort of surges again, they might have to go from open campus back to closed campus. So, online learning is really important, and now schools are trying to figure out, partly, how to create new online content to support students who can't come to campus, but also at Coursera, there's over 4,000 courses uh, created by some of the top universities in the world, and so universities can actually use pre-existing content to help their students learn online.
0: Yeah, this is such an important point too. How are you coping as a company with the sheer scale of volume that you've seen? Can you cope with this volume? What about paying for it ultimately? Because I know you made this free. And do you think yeah. in the future courses stay to a greater degree online, perhaps more than we've ever seen
6: before? I think with social distancing, there will for the foreseeable future, there will be some students who are on campus and almost certainly some students who will not be on campus. And in fact, there will be some faculty on campus and probably some faculty not on campus. So I do think online learning will be standard for every university. And in terms of coping with the volume, you know, there's a, a few different things that we did immediately. First thing, you know, take care of your employees, make sure that they're safe, make sure that they have the support and the tools to continue to work and, and serve customers. And then the next thing is making sure that our, our sort of human processes are scaling A lot of what that comes down to is actually writing new software to automate things and then to make sure the servers are running. And we have our servers running on AWS, so we've got a lot of capacity, uh, elasticity there. One of the key features, though, that was difficult is that universities had a challenge matching thousands of courses in their on-campus catalog with thousands of courses in the Coursera catalog. So our data science team created an artificial intelligence algorithm. Some people call this natural language processing that reads. The, the computer reads the course catalog and actually, based on the semantics, matches it with the top courses on Coursera. So that matching is now done automatically. We just uh, released that today.
0: Congratulations, because that's awesome. One can only imagine how many courses you have to reel through in order to find something that you're that's close enough to what you're already doing. Great job, Jeff. Yeah. Thank you so much again thank Thank you you. for what you're doing stay in touch and we'll continue this conversation and stay well jeff imagine calder the ceo of coursera all right after the break something we all need to hear simple acts of kindness to get you through the day one call by this baseball legend lifted the lives of hard-working medical workers we'll bring you the details next Welcome back to First Move. News headlines can sound the same day in, day out. And believe me, you and I know how overwhelming that can feel sometimes. So what can we all do to make things easier? Every day, small gestures of kindness make a world of difference. Like when the basketball, sorry, the baseball star David Ortiz dropped in on these Boston medical workers.
10: How much I love and respect you for what you guys are
0: doing. Taking your life, taking your your time, that's something that it goes beyond everything. So the Red Sox are gonna donate
6: four tickets for life. What? I love that you're social distancing.
0: I'll never be forgiven for getting that wrong, but you heard right there free Red Sox tickets for life. The workers later headed to Fenway Park to throw a ceremonial first pitch. For a season that, like the rest of the sporting world, is now on hold. We salute acts of kindness everywhere. Stay safe, everybody. Thank you for watching, and we'll see you tomorrow.
10: When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level.